Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Nick Gosling, the Executive Director of the Libertarian Christian Institute. With me today is Dr. Jason Jewell. He's the Chairman of Humanities at Faulkner University in Montgomery, Alabama. He's also a faculty member with Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom and recently joined the editorial board for Christian Libertarian Review, LCI's new academic research journal. Today, we're going to be talking about the great books in the Western tradition and how they can inform our theology and our political philosophy. So, Dr. Jewell, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be with you. So, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, How did you come to the faith, or were you raised in the church, and how did you become a libertarian? Well, I grew up in, I guess, what you might call an academic household. My parents were both university professors, and I was raised in a Christian home. I professed Christ when I was 11 years old and was baptized, and since then I've did my, done my best to live a Christian life. So, no uh, dramatic conversion story or anything like that. I ended up following in my parents' footsteps and studied to become a university professor, and I came to libertarianism while I was doing my doctoral studies at Florida State University. In the autumn of 2000, as I'm sure you'll remember, there was a controversy over the presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore, and I was at ground zero for that in Tallahassee where the recounts were going on and the hanging shads and all of that episode. I got a front row seat to all of that because a reporter for the Knight Ritter News Service showed up on campus to the history department where I was a graduate assistant asking for someone to accompany him downtown to the Capitol to be his gopher essentially for that day. And I was the only person there at 8 o'clock in the morning, so I got the job. And I got to see all of the craziness going on at the state capitol surrounding that recount. And that kind of reactivated my latent interest in politics. I had not paid much attention to the political scene for several years. But over the next few months, I read voraciously. I read the platforms of every American political party I could get my hands on. I did a lot of thinking and studying and praying about it, and eventually came to the conclusion that the libertarian philosophy was the one that best expressed the Christian ideas, uh, particularly of nonviolence. And since that time, I had considered myself a libertarian. In 2002, I think it was, I discovered the Ludwig von Mises Institute and went to a couple of events there that were designed for graduate students, and 
while I went to those events, I met Tom Woods and several others of the uh, luminaries of the libertarian movement and uh, never looked back, I guess. So ever since that time, I, I guess about 15, 16, 17 years, I've been uh, doing a little bit here and there of thinking and writing and trying to blend my libertarian thought with my own academic pursuits. You know, over the years, the more that I've read from the great books and the Western tradition, and I've I've been through a fair amount, but I mean, as you know, there's just so much material there. Um, I believe, in fact, I believe you're going through a ten-year project to read through the great books. Is that correct? <laughs> well, it may end up being ten years. It was originally designed to be seven, but I've gotten slowed down along the way. But yes, it's a, a very lengthy endeavor. Yeah, because there's just so much wisdom there, and I I think that you know as as modern uh, individuals we do ourselves a great disservice if we ignore that wisdom that has been built up and and put down on paper for us over the millennia. So when you consider the term liberal arts, I think a lot of people today don't really know where that term comes from. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what it meant in the original sense and how studying the liberal arts is about really liberating the human spirit to live as a free and righteous person? Sure. The term liberal arts goes all the way back to ancient Greece. And writers like Aristotle said that the liberal arts are the fields of study that are appropriate to free citizens, of course, in contrast to slaves. So these are areas of inquiry that a free man would do well to spend his time on, thinking about the big questions, the meaning of life, what is happiness, what does it mean to live a good life? These are questions that you wouldn't want to encourage slaves to think too much, uh, spend too much time thinking about. You might educate a slave to do all kinds of useful and technical things, and slaves in the ancient world were educated in that way, to do engineering or keep the accounts, all sorts of things that people go to universities today to study. But the liberal arts in particular were things that were appropriate for free citizens as opposed to slaves. And you can see why there would have been a reluctance to educate slaves in these things. If they start thinking about the meaning of life and all those kinds of questions, it might lead to more dissatisfaction with their status as a slave. So this idea was carried forward throughout the ancient world and throughout the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, we had this idea of the liberal arts being a specific set of seven disciplines that were represented in the curriculum called the trivium and the quadrivium. And these were the things that you would have studied if you had gone to a university in the Middle Ages. The trivium being grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the quadrivium being arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. So these were the fields of study that were considered, again, appropriate for the people who were going to enter one of the professions, chief among them being the priesthood. Again, these are things that might not be considered 
immediately practical in day-to-day living if you're a farmer or something like that or a craftsman. But if you want to take part in public life, if you're going to be one of the leaders or the shapers of the society, and if you are going to be one of the people who spends a lot of time in contemplation and reflection on the meaning of life and the universe and God, the kinds of subjects that you would want to be trained in. When we get into the Italian Renaissance, there's a bit of a shift in the way some people thought about the liberal arts, and the people who were called humanists at that time gravitated more towards a set of subjects that were referred to at the time as the studia humanitatis. This included uh, some of the subjects that were part of the trivium and quadrivium, but also included others like history and poetry and moral philosophy. But it's really there in the Renaissance that that notion of the liberal arts as a set of disciplines, fields of inquiry that are appropriate for people who want to participate in public life, uh, really gets cemented and, and carries forward into the modern era. And in modern society where we live in democratic states, where everyone is expected to participate to some degree in public life and to be informed on matters of national significance and those sorts of things, the liberal arts becomes all the more important as a broad-based curriculum for people to spend time thinking about those big questions and how we can navigate those difficult issues that face us in our individual lives, but also socially and collectively. Now, you mentioned Aristotle a little while ago, and one of his ideas is this idea of people who are natural natural slaves, essentially. And what he meant by that is that there are people who uh, don't have the ability to think and direct their own lives. They are individuals who are, in some sense, uh, kept down by by their very essence and and nature, they are they are by nature not free men who can't think independently. And when I when I think about how that applies today, I mean that's just that's at the heart of socialism, and it's at the heart of establishment conservatism. People who just uh, parrot whatever they're told and have no ability to really critically analyze things is is really the heart of what Aristotle meant by a natural slave. And the whole idea of true education, at least in the, the, the Socratic understanding, is to liberate the individual to be able to pursue what is true, good, and beautiful. Would you agree with that assessment? I think so for the most part. Aristotle's use of those terms of the, uh, the slave by nature and so on, he obviously there's an element to some degree of a sort of, I guess, we could call it a Greek chauvinism uh, when he writes about that. But he does also talk about the nobility of uh, people that he considered barbarians in certain circumstances. But he also says that to a great extent, the person's character and, and, and soul, if you will, is shaped by the kind of society in which they're brought up. So a person who might at birth be capable of being shaped into a free citizen, having been raised in a society where 
you have authoritarianism or something of that sort where that kind of spirit of inquiry is never cultivated and the study of the liberal arts and those sorts of things, that could really uh, destroy a person's capacity for living as a, a free man or a free woman. And there are differences, of course, between Aristotle and Plato. And Plato, of course, is trying to summarize to a great extent the teachings of, of his teacher, Socrates. But it's true, as you say, that Socrates' big emphasis in a lot of ways was that idea of self-reflection and attempts to improve oneself through meditation and contemplation of the divine and of uh, purity and, and what he considered to be the perfection of the abstract. Um, Aristotle also had his idea of ways in which one could improve oneself, and he focused more on forming good habits, and that's how you acquire virtue. I think there's a, a role for both of those um, approaches, and when we teach the liberal arts today and try to encourage students to embark on this path of improving themselves throughout their lives and continuing to learn and continuing to cultivate virtue in their own lives. Unfortunately, as you know, so much of what passes for education in society today actively shies away from that question of virtue, because in a society like the United States, there is no agreement on what the good is and what virtue consists of. So uh, public schools and the like uh, just tend to stay away from that question to the detriment of all the students who are uh, in those institutions, I think. You know, one of the things that I find is often neglected in New Testament scholarship is the context of the Hellenized world in Second Temple Judaism. And so we have this uh, conflict that had been building up for centuries between the poets and the philosophers, the, the people who were following Homer and Aeschylus and Euripides and Sophocles, uh, and the people who were adherents of Socrates, Plato, and, and other philosophers who sort of challenged that, uh, that ancient myth that was dominant in the Greek city-states at the time. So can you give us a little bit of a background on that, the, the perennial quarrel between the poets and the philosophers um, prior to the New Testament era? Yes, you see a lot of this in the writings of Plato and Aristotle. Of course, they're presenting sort of the philosopher's point of view on this. And if you look over on the poet's side of the comedies of Aristophanes, for instance, or the tragedies of Aeschylus, you'll see the same sort of conflict being presented from, from the other side. And to, to paint with a very broad brush, the poets are passing down the inherited traditions and the myths, as you said. These, this is sort of like a, a folk wisdom, if you will, that has accumulated over many centuries. And that is a set of beliefs and attitudes that, by and large, served the Greek people fairly well throughout the archaic period and going into the classical era. The philosophers come along and want to step back and try to analyze things more critically and abstractly, and in some cases, they have some very 
you know, penetrating critiques of that tradition that's represented by the poets. Um, sometimes they're able to point out weak spots in what the poets have been saying. At other times, as you know, if you read the Platonic dialogues, it seems like the, uh, the philosophers sometimes go off the rails as well and propose some really crazy things. So there's, there's value to be seen in both of those traditions, but they were not very friendly towards each other. And of course, if you read something like Plato's Republic or The Laws, one of Plato's last works, Plato just says flat out, you know, we can't allow poets into the city that we're designing. You know, our, our perfect city will not have room for these people because they tell all kinds of lies about the gods and about uh, what is what is right and wrong. And if you listen to the poets, you're going to end up saying things like, well, it's okay for me to steal somebody else's property because we have these myths of the gods doing that. And if the gods did it, it must be okay. So again, they critique each other in very effective ways. If you read Aristophanes' play, The Clouds, you see a, a lampooning of Socrates that's very funny, but also very serious in that it points to this problem that the poets saw in the philosophers of kind of pie-in-the-sky abstract thinking that uh, couldn't really translate to the real world. So, as you say, that context that's been of that argument that's been happening for centuries is there, kind of in the background, when we get to the period of the New Testament. And you see some of that in the book of Acts and in some of the epistles in the New Testament, where the apostles are, are having to confront, in one way or another, these various intellectual traditions that are very influential in the Greek world. You know, one of the things that I think is, is very profound is that when we talk about the myth and the story and the narrative, there's, there's something to that in how it really drives the, the direction of society. And, I mean, this happens almost subconsciously for people who really aren't on the lookout for it. But what we believe about where we come from and who we are and what ultimate reality is shapes the world around us in a very profound way. And ultimately, that's where our ethics come from. It's where our politics come from. And that's really one of the great advantages and necessities of studying this this tradition and reading the great books to understand uh, the great conversation, as it's called, uh, that's been happening for millennia, is, is precisely so that we can understand really where we come from, who has gone before us, and ultimately where we're going. And so when we look at like literary genre, you can really place things, and I believe Aristotle talks about this in, uh, in the poetics, you have the, the lyric genre, the tragic genre, the comedic genre, and the epic genre. And really, the very nature of the biblical narrative can also kind of fit into this. So you have man in the Garden of Eden, he's in harmony with God. There's the fall, which is tragic to go from the high point to the low point. Ultimately, the story of the gospel takes us from the depth of sin through resurrection. It's that comic restoration uh, that's really at the heart of the universe. So, I mean, and this is just something that's been very 
um, impactful for me in, in my own life is being able to study great literature. It really draws out our ability to, to, to get the, at the essence of our faith. Um, so doctrine is important, but being able to live it out and understand it and apply it, I think there's something about great literature that just makes that possible and sharpens our ability to live Christ-like in a way that just studying doctrine alone uh, can't really do. What would you think about that? Yeah, Nick, there's a lot to unpack in what you've just said on a number of, of different levels. On the question of genre and narrative, I think that's a point that many Christians find very easy to overlook. And if you're like me, and I come from what a lot of people would broadly consider, a, I guess, an evangelical background, there are some people in that camp that don't see the value of, of narrative really at all. They want to just have doctrinal propositions that they can think about and digest. And so there might be some people who would be perfectly at home reading a, a theological treatise and find that very fulfilling, but would never think of picking up a work of fiction. And conversely, there are people who are exactly the opposite, who would get a lot out of reading narratives, and whether they are fictional or non-fictional, and then shy away from the more abstract argumentation to be found in uh, pure theology, I guess. But we need both. And the way God has made us, I believe, is that we have these d different methods of communicating truth through the communication of, a, of an experience, for example, like you find in narrative, and the consideration of more uh, abstract propositions. And this is, in a way, this is going back to this conflict between the poets and the philosophers. Uh, th they both are saying important things, but they're doing them in, in very different ways, and they don't always agree. But often, it's the method of communicating that either attracts somebody or, or, or drives him away. But I think that we need both of those in the church, and that to dismiss one or the other as uh, unimportant or, or harmful, which some people will do, they'll say that you're not being authentically Christian if you're participating in in uh, you know, re the reading of novels or something like that. Uh, I, I think that that's the, the wrong way uh, to look at it. The idea of immersing ourselves in that great tradition, I think, is so significant. I teach in a great books program, and in the early years of that program, here at a Christian university, it was not that unusual to be approached by somebody maybe on our Bible faculty or by a student who would say something on the order of, why do you have this great books program when we have the Bible? You know, that's the greatest book. Why don't we just read the Bible? What's the point of reading Homer? Or what's the point of reading Dante or Thomas Aquinas or any of these people? God gave us what we need uh, in the Bible. 
And of course, I agree that God gives us what we need in the Bible, but uh, we can all point to examples of people who have done a lot of damage by uh, looking at the Bible through squinted eyes or taking things out of context or uh, emphasizing some things unduly over, over a more holistic picture. And particularly when you're talking about the, the Christian tradition broadly conceived, and even beyond that, the, the great pagan traditions that help prepare the way for the, for the gospel in certain ways. Uh, these are, this is a context that is really significant that can both enrich our own practice of the faith and help us to reach others. So, I'm willing to um, debate until I'm blue in the face with uh, some of these well-meaning brothers and sisters who don't yet see the value of uh, the great tradition. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier was a reference to the various deficiencies of the philosophers or the poets in, in their own respective ways. And really, Christ uh, brings those things together. Like you said, he, he, he is the perfect philosopher. He is the perfect poet. He's God and man joined in one. And he brings these things together and resolves those discrepancies and differences that mere mortal men could not. And as we move into the other side of, uh, of, of the era, the post-Christian uh, era, or, or what I mean by that is rather after Christ, uh, as opposed to Second Temple Judaism, we have Augustine, probably the most influential theologian outside of the Bible itself in history, who came to the faith in large part by reading Plato. And his magnum opus, The City of God, written around the time that Rome was basically unraveling, is an attempt to explain what, what was happening in the empire and why it was happening and how Christ is really the only answer for a, a just civilization. Can you, can you talk about sort of the direction of his argument in City of God? Sure. Uh, Augustine is living through a period when the Roman Empire is in decline. This is a generation or two after Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire under Theodosius in the late 4th century. And now things are falling apart for the Romans. There are many pagan thinkers of the day who were blaming this decline on Christianity and saying, we turned away from our traditional gods, and now we're being punished, and Christianity is going to lead us to destruction. So, in the City of God, Augustine is concerned with a couple of things. First of all, to defend the church from those accusations. And then, secondly, to reassure the Christians of his own time that the fate or the, uh, the um, fate might not be the best word, that sounds a little pagan, uh, the ultimate destination of the church is not tied to that of the Roman Empire. So, I think we're probably more interested here in the second of those arguments, but he spends a great deal of time tracing these two parallel uh, kingdoms or civilizations or cities that he refers to as the city of man and the city of God. And the city of man 
is essentially um, human society attempting to figure things out on its own, building cities and empires and going to war and uh, devastation and death and all those kinds of things that go along with that. And, of course, none of those earthly empires uh, lasts in the long run. They all eventually decline and are destroyed. On the other hand, the city of God is the group of people that are chosen by God going all the way back to, he, he traces this, you know, going all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament and says that throughout the history of humanity, God has had his chosen people that he has something uh, much better and more perfect in mind for them. And this is the city that will endure. And so he traces it through the history of uh, ancient Israel uh, coming up into the period of the, uh, the Christian church and says that ultimately we are, we the church, those of us who are part of that live among and within the city of man. We are citizens of earthly kingdoms at the same time that we are citizens of this heavenly kingdom. But we must never forget that ultimately our direction is, is towards the eternal, towards heaven, towards God, and the fate of any earthly political order is not going to change that. So, he's reassuring the, the Christians in the 5th century when he's writing this that if the Roman Empire goes away, that's okay. Uh, we should not mourn it unduly. After all, there were a lot of bad things that happened in Roman history, and uh, pagan Rome had its share of atrocities and bad things that happened too, even though there were some things to admire in it. But uh, that that's not where our hope is, that political order. So, he ends on this you know, very hopeful note, and it's worth noting this, that Augustine himself comes to the end of his life with barbarians besieging the city in which he lives, the city of Hippo in North Africa. Yet, here he was offering certainty to Christians that this is not something that, that we need to fear, that the church is not um, tied to any earthly political order and that God will preserve it and has a more, uh, you know, a higher purpose for it in mind. Now, in the centuries after Augustine, we move into the uh, what is sometimes called the the Dark Ages. I'm not a fan of that term myself, but we have the, the early Middle Ages and really the a, a lot of the great wisdom of the Greco-Roman world was basically forgotten in the West. Uh, and, and for centuries, even the works of Aristotle were were, were almost completely uh, just sort of buried. Uh, but by the time we get into the later Middle Ages, the high and the later Middle Ages, the works of Aristotle have been rediscovered. We have Thomas Aquinas, who draws heavily on Aristotle. Uh, and then we have Dante, I believe in the early 14th century, writes uh, The Divine Comedy, which is one of my all-time favorite books. And I, I think uh, it, it's just a travesty that so many Christians today are – they have a caricatured idea of what Dante was talking about. Really, it's just they have some vague concept of Dante's Inferno, which is just one part of, of the Divine Comedy. Uh, can you talk to us about what was Dante's point about man, the quest of the soul towards God and how really God is the only thing 
which can fulfill man's deepest longing and need. Yeah, you've hit upon what a lot of people, myself included, would consider to be the greatest work of the Middle Ages, in, in literary terms at least. And the Divine Comedy is a work that you can spend a great deal of time, even though it doesn't take you that long simply to read it front to back. Uh, but there is so much there and so many uh, deep philosophical ideas, theological ideas, as well as you know, tremendous command of language, and, and in a literary sense, it's quite beautiful. That you know, people devote their some people devote their entire careers to a study of this uh, epic poem. So, at the beginning of the work, and uh, <clears throat> I'm sure most people listening to this will know that the Divine Comedy is divided into three sections that deal respectively with the narrator's journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven. And at the very beginning of the poem, the narrator says that when he was in the middle of his life, he found himself in a dark wood. So we're, I guess in modern psychological terms, we'd sort of call this a midlife crisis. And he has an idea of where he, he ought to go. He sees the the light up on the hill, and he wants to get there, but he's blocked by these fierce beasts that to prevent him from going in that direction. And then he's approached by another man who he recognizes as Virgil, the great Roman poet, the author of the Aeneid in the first century BC. And uh, Virgil tells him that he can't go directly to where he wants to go, to the light uh, up on the hill. Instead, he has to go through this roundabout journey, first through hell and then through purgatory, and then ultimately he'll reach his goal in paradise. And so we have this narrative of uh, Virgil leading the narrator down through the, the pits of hell, and there are many uh, interesting encounters along the way where the poet, uh, the narrator, uh, recognizes various people, some from classical mythology, some from... Uh, Italian history, some of them his own contemporaries, and he has conversations with them, and there are various philosophical and theological points being made along the way about the nature of sin, and each particular sin in hell is punished in a particular way that is sort of suited to the uh, offense that that sin embodies. And after we go all the way down through the bottom of hell, we see Satan at the end of the Inferno, then uh, Dante and Virgil come out the other side of the earth, and they come to the mountain of Purgatory. Purgatory is depicted as uh, a very tall mountain that they must ascend. And so, here we go through uh, many episodes of uh, penitent sinners being purged of the various offenses that they have committed in life, and there, there's hope in in purgatory in a way that there is not in the inferno because the people in purgatory know that ultimately they will be purged of that sin and they will uh, reach paradise. But we have the same kinds of sins being described and they're being purged in particular ways from the people who had committed them in life. When we get to the top of Mount Purgatory, Virgil has to take his leave of the narrator. He says, well, I'm not permitted because I am a pagan after all. I never... Um, you know, was a Christian, 
So Virgil has to go back to uh, sort of the, the first circle of hell, Limbo, which is where all the virtuous pagans are in Dante's telling. And here at the top of Mount Purgatory in the Garden of Eden, Virgil meets Beatrice. Now, Beatrice is a very interesting character. She is, uh, in in many ways, for Dante, sort of the symbol of perfection and beauty and uh, the, the gateway to divine love. The real Beatrice is someone that Dante, uh, she was another Florentine like Dante himself, but he did not know her very well, but he sort of loved her from afar, the way he tells the story. She died young, and he never had a chance to uh, approach her and declare his love for her. But here, she becomes his guide uh, into paradise, and he ranks Beatrice among the saints, and his, in, in life, Dante's love for Beatrice, according to his own telling, is what leads him to study philosophy and then to theology and then ultimately to a love of God. So, it's Beatrice who serves as his guide in the Divine Comedy uh, through the various uh, circles of heaven until uh, there are some very beautiful passages in the Paradise where Dante, the narrator, says, I experienced something that I really can't put into words. And so, he sort of leaves this uh, question mark for you. What, what, what exactly is the nature of this union with God or this rapture? But this is, as a whole… A story, you know, told in the sense of a a guy traveling through these different things. So you can just view it as a sort of road trip story. But at the same time, it is a, a story, as you said, of a journey of the soul through suffering and pain, and ultimately uh, to divine love. And pretty much, it since it was first composed, it was recognized as a masterpiece and has been considered one of the great works of world literature since that time. Uh, you may know that uh, just recently there was um, a book written, I think it was by Rod Dreher of the American Conservative, uh, published a book titled How Dante Saved My Life and gives some very uh, moving testimony about how his reading of this work and meditating on it and applying some of the insights to it really helped him through a really difficult time uh, in his own life. So, even though a lot of people look at the Divine Comedy today and say, this is this is weird. It's it seems some even some Christians say it seems too bound by time and place, and you have to have too much local knowledge to figure out what's going on in the Divine Comedy. I, I think those criticisms are misplaced. I think that there are universal truths and ideas that are communicated through the, this work that can still have a profound impact on people seeking to live the Christian life today in the 21st century. And that's one of the things about the great books. I mean, the, the reason they are the great books is because they have this timeless, enduring wisdom that really gets to the heart of what it means to be a human and a human walking with God and struggling with sin and all these things that we, we all uh, experience in our lives in different, in different ways, but the, the essence is the same. It's been the same since the dawn of time. And that's what's so appealing about these great works of literature is that the truth is timeless. And so the Divine Comedy is just magnificent. And I would encourage all of our listeners to to make a point of reading that at some point in their life. Um, there's, there's much we could say about Shakespeare also and Milton. I mean, there's just so many great thinkers throughout the ages. But I want to talk a little bit now about uh, Machiavelli and, and Thomas Hobbes and really how they reshaped 
thinking about virtue and politics and how really the destructive effects of that uh, kind of formed the framework for modern statism. Uh, so Machiavelli was really writing around the same time as as Luther. I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the dates, but within a few decades of, of each other, I believe. Um, and he really sort of set the prototype for what constitutes a, a a modern tyrant. So can you can you talk about the prince and what was Machiavelli's thesis and then how did Hobbes kind of build on that in Leviathan about a century or so later, I believe? Yes, and you're right. Machiavelli and Luther are contemporaries. I believe the prince was published around 1513, so just a few years before the posting of the 95 theses. And Machiavelli very self-consciously in the prince turns away from the classical and medieval and Christian tradition of rendering advice to statesmen, to rulers. There's this whole very long tradition of uh, political theorists and theologians writing manuals of advice and conduct for rulers and telling them how to rule in a just way and in a Christian way. And Machiavelli uh, sort of throws all that out the window and says, the job of a prince is to stay in power. And whatever you do that is necessary to help you stay in power, that is the right thing for you to do. So he gives this counsel that is was shocking to people in the 16th century and it continues to shock many readers today when he says things like, well, yes, uh, you may you know have to you know murder your political enemies from time to time if they are becoming a threat, and you know those kinds of things that um, you know just fly in the face of any sort of uh, traditional or, or or Christian notion of virtue and right conduct. And Machiavelli's defense of this is to say, well, you may as a ruler, you may be the most virtuous person in the world. And you might have all the right ideas on how to rule justly, but none of that is going to do you any good if you're thrown out of power. So your number one job is to stay in power so that then you can do all these nice and wonderful things that you say you want to do. So the, uh, the grasping of, of power, political power, is the thing for Machiavelli. And of course, he's writing in a period where there's a lot of political turbulence in Italy and rulers of cities being overthrown and um, assassinated and all sorts of things going on on a fairly regular basis. And Machiavelli sort of uh, just says, well, we, we have to take the world as it is. And how are we going to navigate this environment successfully? Let's not talk about what ought to be. That's fruitless to a great extent. Let's, talk, let's take the world as it is and then uh, try to make sure we can succeed uh, in that particular environment. And this became the way in which uh, many later political theorists uh, tried to treat the question of statecraft, that uh, we're going to, we're not going to assume that there's, a, that there's an ought, perhaps, to the way in which uh, rulers do things. We're just going to analyze the mechanism of power and how one is able to uh, acquire it 
and then utilize it. And then make sure that everybody uh, who is under you, if you're the ruler, uh, is, is given a good reason to to continue to obey you. So in the case of Hobbes, of course, we've got this theoretical edifice constructed on you know, to justify the absolute power uh, of the state. And you know, perhaps to say maybe one word in Hobbes's defense, uh, his defenders would say, "Well, look, you know, he's he's living through a time of political turbulence too, and there are civil wars and uh, all kinds of crazy things happening, and uh, maybe he should be forgiven for saying, let 'Let's just have one ruler, and they could put a stop to the all the political turbulence.'" But on the other hand, uh, when you create <laughs> a, a, a ruler with unlimited power or you try to justify that, then, of course, you have laid the groundwork for tyranny. Uh, in the 17th century, when Hobbes was writing, there were quite a few people who would gladly have taken tyranny over, uh, over anarchy. And I say anarchy not in the uh, anarcho-capitalist sense, but in the sense of uh, civil war and chaos. So uh, we've got a lot of modern theorists who go down that road of absolutism to say, yes, it's, it's going to be the best thing for us just to to shove all the power into the hand of one guy, and yeah, he may be a bad guy, but uh, even if he oppresses everybody, it probably still isn't as bad as us all being at each other's throats, as per Hobbes' uh, state of nature, uh, you know, fictional sort of grounding for his uh, social contract. So, there are uh, you know, a distressing number of modern political theorists who sort of follow in the footsteps of Machiavelli and Hobbes. And for Christians, of course, that's a big problem, and particularly Christian libertarians who are very skeptical of the uh, the rightness of trying to wield political power over others and uh, believe that that's not the way that Christ called us to engage the world. So uh, it's you know, very important that we have organizations like the Libertarian Christian Institute to try to articulate uh, the alternatives to, to that philosophy. Machiavelli and Hobbes, you know, were were mainly living in a in a time of monarchy, right? They were they were essentially monarchists. Later we have Rousseau, who sort of takes this same kind of idea, reworks it pretty substantially in some ways, but the idea is that that this sovereignty is transferred into this mythical collective. It's it's the state, it's the civil society, you have civil religion. And this sort of lays the, the framework for what happened in the French Revolution. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? And what, I, what I'm really interested in is how Charles Dickens, in A Tale of Two Cities, really exposes the dark side of societal revolution. What happens when society itself and all our institutions and all our values are thrown out the window in complete upheaval? What you wind up with is this bloodthirsty tyranny that was even worse than the French monarch. Yeah, it's it's been a, a long, long time since I've read A Tale of Two Cities, so I hesitate to make any uh, specific application there. But in terms of Rousseau, certainly, uh, he is operating in a tradition which I guess in some ways you could say goes back to the middle of the 16th century where certain Protestant writers initially argued that uh, sovereignty is located in in the people as a whole, and uh, writers like John Knox argued that, for example, and that helped to justify 
uh, resistance to uh, Catholic monarchs who were persecuting Protestants in, the, in their jurisdictions. Well, Rousseau picks up on this, and in the, in the 18th century, in works like uh, The Social Contract, is arguing, again, for essentially an, an absolutist state. But there are a lot of interesting things that have happened in the intervening century or two in which uh, somebody like Hobbes would say that really human beings are, are naturally they're going to be at each other's throats and when we create this state and give it absolute power we need that so that the state can preserve some degree of law and order and so that we all won't be beating each other's brains out uh, for Rousseau this mythical state of nature is more like a golden age when when everybody got along and where there was plenty to go around and Rousseau believed that human nature was intrinsically and, and essentially good. It's society and social institutions that have created all the various problems that we face. And Rousseau says, now I understand we can't go back to the state of nature. We're going to have to continue to have these institutions. But he thought that the state was the, was the vehicle that could reform us and, and redeem us to a certain extent and help to bring about progress. So this idea that he comes up with and ex, uh, expresses in the social contract is one of the general will in which the, uh, the common uh, is kind of a mystical notion. There, it's, it's not written down anywhere. It's not articulated by any one person. But the, the collective, the general will of the people is the right thing. And it's the job of the state to enact that general will. And Rousseau recognizes that it's a problem, uh, that how can the state do this when it's not evident uh, who, you know, what the general will is. And he basically says, well, we just have to have smart people in charge who can figure it out and then force us all uh, to adhere to the general will. And obviously, there is... Um, a very uh, short step between that and the reign of terror uh, in the French Revolution that comes along uh, just a decade or two after Rousseau's death in the 1770s. Now, again, Rousseau has defenders, and there are a lot of people who like his emphasis on equality, others who see problems with what he was saying, but, but at the same time will say, well, you know, Rousseau is a guy talking about a city-state, essentially. He lived in Geneva, you know, 10,000 people, maybe you could have something like that going on in, on, in that small of a polity. But his uh, political successors as leaders of the French Revolution certainly didn't see that as a limitation and tried to enact these principles throughout France and other countries where they gained influence to devastating effect. And the, the purges and the, uh, the bloodshed of uh, the French Revolution, and then many of the subsequent ideological conflicts in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, you can't blame it all on Rousseau, obviously, but uh, he planted a lot of those seeds that resulted in uh, a lot of uh, very awful things. So uh, he's certainly not one of my favorite authors. You know, there's so many other great individuals that we, we can talk about. I'd love to talk about Hawthorne and Alexis de Tocqueville and Tolstoy, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring up Fyodor Dostoevsky, who I think is just one of the greatest authors of all time, and his work is so profoundly Christian in 
in, in a non-overt way, but I mean, his theology just permeates the story. And The Brothers Karamazov is maybe my all-time favorite novel. One of the fascinating things about Dostoevsky is that he's writing several decades before uh, the Russian Revolution. And of course, he is Russian. And, you know, he, he has this line about, without God, all things are permissible. And it was almost prophetic of what then transpired several decades later with the rise of institutional communism, the Russian Revolution, the Soviet Union, all the mass war we had in the 20th century. But his novels aren't, they aren't pessimistic. They're really, they're really about redemption and they're about resurrection and they're about new life. And there's just so many times when I think that we as the church kind of miss that, even though it is so obviously the heart of our faith. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about Dostoevsky's work, what's the theology of his work, and how that can apply to the, the church today? Yeah, Dostoevsky is an author who is difficult to read for a lot of Americans, uh, even, even Christians. And I think there's a, f- a few reasons for that. Obviously, there's a sort of there's a Russian tone and sensibility to his his books, but also the f- fact that he is from the world of Eastern Orthodoxy is one that, that that's a that's a universe that that's kind of foreign to a lot of American Christians. So even when he is communicating very deep Christian ideas, a lot of American Christians still have some trouble sometimes trying to uh, make sure they don't get lost in translation. You mentioned the Brothers Karamazov. Uh, Crime and Punishment is another uh, very profound novel of redemption. Uh, we have in our um, own great books program here for undergraduates, we have them read Notes from the Underground, which has the virtue of being a bit shorter than uh, the other two novels that we've already already mentioned. And I see these students uh, you know, really, really struggling with his style of narration. The, there's, a, there's an intensely psychological um, angle to the way he narrates his stories. And you, you kind of are taken along through the twists and turns of the, the, the meandering thoughts of his protagonists. And in the mid to late 19th century, when Dostoevsky was writing, this was very groundbreaking literary technique. And no one had really ever done this before in, in quite this way. So his works continue to draw a lot of you know, attention from people who are interested in psychology because you do get this uh, very up-close view of in some cases, a, a criminal mind or or a mind of um, an atheist who's running away from God, but still feels God tugging at him in certain ways. And uh, the person who tries to uh, seek meaning through pleasure and and finds that ultimately unfulfilling, you, you find all of this in, in the writing of, of Dostoevsky. And I've uh, spoken to people who have said that really reading 
Dostoevsky is the thing that brought them to the Christian faith. So there's a, a great profundity to his works. And uh, Brothers Karamazov is a difficult book to get through. I don't know if that's if that's the first one that I would recommend that people read, but I think Crime and Punishment might be a little more accessible to a lot of um, a lot of Americans today. And it has a sort of detective story angle to it that uh, a lot of people, I think, would would latch on to okay. So that might be the first thing that I'd recommend by Dostoevsky that, that people read. But certainly, uh, I agree with you that the Brothers Karamazov is probably his masterpiece. And you have a lot of character profiles and theological discussion along the way that, that's so interesting. Of course, the, the little vignette of the Grand Inquisitor is... Uh, one of the most dramatic and powerful passages in all of world literature, I think. But there's also a lot of uh, theological debate over, uh, for example, the appropriate relationship between church and state in Brothers Karamazov. And so there's a lot of things that uh, Christians will find to reflect on and chew on mentally uh, in that novel and, and in all of Dostoevsky's writings. You know, as we draw to a close here, I mean, it, we we didn't even get into the 20th century and all that could be said with George Orwell and the Inklings, Tolkien and Lewis. And uh, I was hoping to be able to talk a little bit about Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, which I think is just one of the great novels of all time. It's fabulously comedic and scathingly anti-war. Uh, but as we as we close out here, what would be your sort of parting thoughts to our listeners on why they should engage the great books and how really it's a it's a lifelong journey because there's just so much material there and really as I think as we change as we grow in our own lives uh, the wisdom in these books actually takes on new meaning with time because it addresses it means different things to us at different times in our life because there's insights we can draw from it as we're going through different things or through different periods. Uh, that maybe we didn't see the first time around. So I'll, I'll go ahead and give you the uh, the, the, the closing word there. <laughs> yeah, to, to the last thing you just said, uh, a great example of that is I, I read Tolstoy's War and Peace for the first time when I was in my mid-20s and didn't get it. Really, I came away from it just not really having a handle on what was going on there. Uh, I'm rereading it now, almost 20 years later, and finding so much that is illuminating and challenging and frustrating, and I'm, I'm interacting with the text on a com- in a completely different way than I did the first time I-, I read it. And your point about the great books meaning different things to you at different stages of life, I think, is, is spot on. And that's one reason why it's important to, to reread the great texts. Uh, this is, these are not like uh, dime store novels that you can read once, get a sense of the plot, and say, okay, well, I've, I've, I've taken care of that one. You know, this, th- these are books that you need to come back and reconsider time and again. And for Christians in particular, uh, my pitch on why Christians should read the great books is, is going to be a bit different from how what I would say to people in general. But for Christians, I would say we're called to love God with our whole being, uh, including our minds. And 
the great books are one of the best tools that we have to improve our minds and to sharpen our thoughts and to become more reflective people, uh, people who can understand the world around us and understand things about human nature and about the way uh, human society tends to operate. Uh, certainly, we've, we've got insights into those things from a number of different sources. But the way they are expressed in the great books of, of Western civilization is something that you really don't encounter in other places, I think. And having you know, gone through more than half of the material in the series of books called The Great Books of the Western World, which was edited and curated by Mortimer Adler decades ago, um, I am certainly a, a different person as a result of that reading that I've done over the last six or seven years. Uh, even and this is all after you know I received a PhD in humanities after I'd been a university professor for a number of years. When I embarked on this intellectual journey of reading the great books, uh, it has changed me uh, significantly. We're as I said, we're called to love God with our minds. We owe it to ourselves, I think, to sit at the feet, metaphorically speaking, of the great minds of Western civilization and to glean all the insights that we can from uh, those authors, primarily Christian authors, but also the pagans and even the anti-Christians, because part of our responsibility as Christians is to be ready to give an answer to those who are in opposition to us. And we can't really give an answer very well unless we know thoroughly the arguments and the reasoning behind the positions that we're encountering. So, yes, we need to read the Hobbeses and the Machiavellis and uh, the Modernists and, and these others who uh, have gone against the gospel in various ways. Um, if I might be permitted to make a plug for my own uh, website, if you go to westerntradition.wordpress.com, you'll see links and posts about my own journey through this body of work. And uh, you're welcome to follow along with some of the readings that I am doing. I'd love to interact with people on the blog and to uh, answer questions and uh, offer recommendations for people who are looking for great books to read. And uh, I appreciate the time that you've taken to interview me about this body of work. I'm always uh, eager to convert more people <laughs> to, the, to the cause. So thanks, Nick, and to LCI for having me on. Thank you, Dr. Jewell. And we will link to uh, your website in the show notes. You can also uh, check out Dr. Jewell's work with Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom and take some courses from him there. So thank you again for joining us on this episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email podcast at libertarianchristians.com. And you can also support us at www.libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. 
The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Thank you.